I'm Simon Burton and welcome to Arts Roundup. At the dark and sombre winter's end, Arts Roundup takes time to look at artwork from warmer climes, investigates artists' obsessions with death, looks at the occult and its influence on contemporary art, talks to people who've been outlandish monsters, and samples the tale of an intriguing and fascinating woman practising the dark art of wartime espionage. In this edition, we visit the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology as it opens a new tapper exhibition of bark cloth paintings from the Pacific region. Author Claire Mully talks on her biography of aristocratic spy Christine Granville. We review Changing Spaces' Memento Mori exhibition in Green Street with Angie Main. Even darker truths are investigated by visiting academics at Cambridge University's conference Visions of Enchantment, Occultism, Spirituality and Visual Culture on the Study of Western Esotericism and Art. And former actor Colin Walsh looks back on his role in being a Doctor Who series monster. If you're looking for something striking and a bit different to brighten up your day in the city centre in the next few weeks, it's really worth dropping into the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology to take a peek at the Tapper bark cloth paintings from the Pacific exhibition that's just opened. Painted bark cloths, known as Tapper, range from striking and colourful clothing to large wall hangings and tapestries, using an ancient technique of soaking and beating of the bark of certain kinds of tropical tree found in the Pacific Islands. Examples include work from Fiji, Tonga, Papua New Guinea, Samoa, Cook Island and the Solomon Islands. It's a world-class exhibition belonging to the museum's collection dating back to Captain Cook's voyages and features optically dynamic abstract patterns, depictions of animal and plant life and sacred creatures and mythic narratives. The Archaeology and Anthropology Museum's Senior Research Associate, Dr Julie Adams, says they were a vital trading and ceremonial currency and are even used to wrap up babies to the present day. The exhibition comes out of a show that we worked on last year, which was actually um, in Birmingham, in an art gallery setting in Birmingham, in the Icon uh, Gallery. Um, basically, they've got this huge space, and they wanted to have a show of bark cloths. Um, one of the things about bark cloths is that quite often they're so large that we simply don't have the space to display them here in uh, the Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. So we collaborated with uh, the Icon Gallery and had this show last May which had 23 of our uh, most beautiful and large bark cloths on exhibit there. And it was such a success that we thought, you know, even though we don't have a big space in this museum, we'd like to try and give our own audiences um, a, you know, a display that they could enjoy here. So uh, we've got these cloths, we've got nine cloths, so it's a reduced version of that exhibition. Um, but we picked the ones that A, would fit in the room, and B, that we thought um, were particularly stunning to show in this show. The techniques of making bark cloth and the traditions of making bark cloth came from Southeast Asia and then into the Pacific Islands as people moved and settled through those islands. So basically um, it's an ancient, ancient technique. Um, and 
It's usually made from a particular type of tree, which is the paper mulberry tree, um, but can be made from, from other types of trees as well. And you, they, islanders basically strip the bark, remove the tough outer layer, and you're left with the kind of slightly softer inner bark, which is then soaked and um, then beaten, basically. They have a, most islanders use a kind of big wooden anvil, spread the bark out over that anvil, get a really heavy wooden beater and pound the, uh, the, uh, the bark until it becomes really soft. So it's then like cotton, isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, uh, there's different techniques in different islands, but basically people would work on kind of smallish size sheets and then uh, kind of glue and paste them onto larger sheets until you can get cloths that can be, you know, many, many, many metres uh, in size. And then they're dyed in these extraordinary colours. Um, yeah. are, are, do the patterns have an interesting uh, provenance on them? Because obviously you've got, you've got them in different colours here, yes. um, in, in, in blacks and blues and, and oranges and things like that. I mean, do yeah. those patterns have a, an interesting provenance? Yeah, in that's a really interesting uh -huh. question. Um, in some places, just to say, in some places the cloths weren't dyed. Mm. Um, for example, in Tahiti they made this really beautiful fine pure white undyed bark cloth and that was reserve, the reserve of chiefs of the highest uh, people in the community wore that bark cloth so um, but as you say the ones that we've got on display here are some really beautiful vibrant colors and uh, they were made the dyes come from different uh, roots or um, vegetable dyes plants nuts um, and I think uh, one that we've got here from the Cook Islands um, they've used uh, turmeric and um, the colours are beautiful peach and lemon, you know, really, and, and this particular cloth was, uh, came to us in 1901, so it's, the, the, the beauty of the colours has survived that, that amount of time in the museum. Um, they, they certainly saw, and they certainly make beautiful pieces of um, clothing and large-scale um, wall, wall hangings yeah. with, with sort of patterns as artworks. Were those given on special occasions to people for their houses, like weddings and things like that? Was that, was that yeah, what Yeah, there's a whole different range, and we tried mm. to show that in mm. the exhibition. Um, some of the smaller pieces were worn as kind of loincloths, but other larger pieces were used as um, kind of dividers in your house, you mm -hmm. know, to divide up into different rooms. But a lot of them, as you say, were um, basically acted as they were wealth items, you yeah. know. So if you were going to the wedding of a chief, mm. you know, your village would make huge quantities, I mean, absolutely vast quantities of bark cloth to present and the kind of the prestige of your own village would be represented through these cloths. And people still make these today, don't they? They do, uh, yes. Um, in, in which countries and, and, and where are they traded? Yeah, in lots of, in lots of the Pacific Islands, cloth yeah. is still made today yeah. um, and still presented at these ceremonies. How long does the exhibition go on till? Uh, the exhibition runs until the 19th of April, mm. so yeah, um, strongly recommend anyone who uh, hasn't seen these kind of items before to come and have a look. Um, are there any tales or stories behind these that I should know about? Um, um, there's, there's lots of different stories. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think um, one of the, the larger pieces that we've got on display here from Fiji is a beautiful example of the, the different way that these cloths communicate mm. to people. So for us, I think um, quite often European audiences are drawn to the particular cloths 
um, that have got maybe fish and dolphins and birds on them. But actually in the Pacific Islands, the power of the designs was not necessarily in what they represented literally, but in the way the designs communicated a sense of awe and power. Um, so the ones from Fiji have got these real geometric patterns, mm. these triangles, different colours. And you can just imagine when it was um, unwrapped or presented at a ceremony, the the kind of the intake of breath as other islanders would see the skill um, that had gone into the making of these cloths. It's certainly a stunning collection. Um, obviously, the Archonanth Museum, refurbished recently, recently, has much many other things to come and have a look at here as well. Yeah. Um, what's coming up in, over the summer in terms of events and things like that? Um, uh -huh. Well, at the moment, we've got actually, which ties in really nicely mm. with this bark cloth yeah. um, exhibition, is we've got uh, a show about our collections from Fiji, which are the strongest collections that, mm. that we have here and um, some of the strongest in the museum. And so that's a nice parallel. Um, and that closes also on the 19th of April and shortly after that we'll be opening um, an exhibition of illustrated uh, manuscripts, Buddhist manuscripts. Um, the exhibition is called Buddha's Words so yeah look out for that. And um, Dr Julie Adams thank you very much indeed. Thank, thank you. The secrets and lives of World War II SOE secret agents are much documented as a kind of national pastime and obsession, but not much has been written on female agents that really brings their daring exploits to life. I've been looking at a biography of Polish aristocrat Christine Granville, a spy who lived out her dangerous existence in several theatres of operations in the Second World War as a glamorous and deadly agent trained by SOE to assassinate and sabotage Nazis and supply Allied resistance groups. Author Claire Mully talks on her biography that sucks you into a life consciously led like an adrenaline-filled picaresque adventure. First of all, before we get into what's in the book, can you tell me a little bit about yourself and how did you come to, to take on this entire subject? Um... Well, it's my second biography. Mm. Um, my first one was a biography of the founder of Save the Children and um, I, it won the Daily Mail Prize for Biography. I was mm. delighted and yeah. that sort of enabled me to do more work. Um, mm. And I was very interested in Polish politics, which I'd looked at in my first um, degree and I'd uh, taught English as a foreign language in Poland and I felt that the history of Poland, particularly their role in the Second World War, wasn't as well known today as it had been. Um, mm. And I was very interested in special agents as well. I'd known a special agent when I was at university, yeah, yeah. although I didn't know yeah. because they kept the secret until yeah. they died. Um, and this story, well, my agent suggested it because it brought together those interests for me. Mm. Um, but I, I really felt that it was a bit like a blind date and I, mm. I wanted to find my own subject and be self-determined. Why, why, uh, why Poland particularly? Where are you from yourself? Uh -huh. I don't have a personal link apart from that I used to live there teaching English for yeah. a short while. Yeah. Um, so it's it, it's a fascinating country because it's, I mean, as today you see, again, with the um, developments, what's happening in the Ukraine, mm. it's one of those buffer countries. Mm. And, and so its mm. borders have been very cross and it's yeah. got a very, um, very rich history. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, so um, 
anyway, I mean, the the, the, the book is is basically it's um, a, a very painstakingly put together um, biography which has lots and lots of real events, and then you've kind of weaved it together into something that I think a lot of people call kind of faction nowadays, which is that you you almost as a witness to um, to the events as they take place. Is that a difficult thing to do? Um, well, it's not intended to be fa- faction. It's yeah. intended to be fact. I mean, yeah. it is It is entirely yeah. factual. So yeah. if I quote someone in there, it's quoted from letters they've written, diary entries, reports that they've mm. written. Mm. So everything in there, you know, if, I, if I've got a weather report, it's checked with a weather report centre. Mm. So, yeah. you know, everything in there is factually correct. Um, but I hope that it is, you know, a page-turning book. I didn't mm. want to write dry history. Yeah. This wasn't yeah. a dry woman. This yeah. was a woman yeah. who loved life and mm. excitement and yeah. danger. Christine Granville, um, who was she and what did she do? She was um, half Jewish Polish aristocrat, wasn't she? She yeah. was yeah. indeed, yeah. yes. She was um, uh, She was born to a, a, um, a very wealthy aristocratic. Her father was from this old Polish family. Mm-hmm. Um, so she was grown up with a lot of wealth and freedom yeah. and a lot of love and adoration. Mm-hmm. But because her mother had been born Jewish, she was never really fully accepted in the higher echelons of Polish society. So I think she grew up yearning to mm. be free and to get centre stage as mm. well in a way that was denied women in the 1930s. Um, it, there's very much a sense of that during the course of the of the book that she she had this, um, she was very, very good looking, um, yep. obviously uh, socially very um, able um, and, and so on, yes. but she seemed to want... More useful things um, for future She wanted spy. social acceptance at the, at the highest level, didn't she? Well, she uh, did and, uh, and she was denied it because uh, she was a woman and then uh, she became a divorcee and then she changed her religion uh, so that she could uh, divorce and she was you know she wasn't seen as particularly socially acceptable in many ways and of course it was the war subverting the sort of usual um, social standards of things that enabled her to take centre stage you know someone who'd always mm. lived in the margins yeah. um, she was able in fact centre stage is, a, is an anagram of mm. secret agent I've always <laughs> liked that so um, yeah it enabled her to have that active role she lived as a man might, perhaps. Well, well that's, it. that's what's um, so incredible about her, because in an era where, you know, um, women didn't step out of the box and do terribly dangerous and daring things, and yet she was one of those those people who, who just um, almost thrived on the thrill of, um, of real-life adventure. Yeah, lots uh, of people say yeah. that she loved danger. She certainly loved... In fact, the book is called The Spy Who Loved, and yeah. um, it's because she loved life in its wider sense. She loved adrenaline and adventure. Um, she loved danger. She loved men. She had mm. two husbands and you know many lovers, mm. um, but above all, she loved freedom and mm. independence, yeah. um, both for her country, Poland originally, mm. for the Allies, mm. and for herself personally. And I think those things are very strongly intertwined for her. Um, in, in the course of your research, um, are women spies? Do they have kind of abilities which are absolutely completely different from men and absolutely essential if you're trying to win a war? I mean, um, well, th- uh, there is there is one thing I mm, think, and mm. that is. Um, the, the gender prejudice of mm. the times. You mm. know, if I mean, Christine was our first female special mm. agent and mm. the longest serving. She mm. worked in three different theatres of the war. Most women weren't recruited for another two years, mm. and nearly all of them only worked in France. And Christine, mm. she was parachuted into France in '44 to work behind enemy lines. And the advantage that women had over men was that they weren't expected to be working or on service mm. or um, conscripted for labour for the Germans or mm. whatever. So they could move much more freely around the countryside on trains by bike or walking so they had a kind of invisibility that can, men didn't that's can, the distinction can we talk about some of her exploits because she did things like um, smuggling things 
by ski routes across the border from Poland and yes. uh, and and sneaking around with kind of microdots sewn into things and sneaking around. Kind of, yeah. I'm not sure I use yeah. that. Well, her first her first role, she mm. was in um, based in Budapest mm. in Hungary. Mm. Um, she was given an alias as a French journalist. Mm. But her role was, I mean, this is in the mid midwinter. She arrived four days before Christmas yeah. and she was skiing across the high Tatra mountains, sometimes in mm. minus 40 degrees. So yeah. absolutely perilous. You know, and occasionally, shockingly, she would pass the bodies of people who'd been mm. coming the sensible mm. way, trying to get mm. out of occupied mm. Poland mm. towards Hungary, who'd frozen to death mm. in the mountains. Mm. And she had, you know, in those days, it was wooden, mm. heavy skis mm. that were strapped on, very hard work. Mm. So she would ski in and she, what she was doing was taking in money and propaganda for the fledgling Polish resistance and bringing out you know radio codes coding books and of course microfilm um, which she smuggled inside her leather gloves back out to the allies the other way Um, and she was someone who was um i mean she 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 went in theater of operations in in egypt in italy in poland in france um all over the place and she was in and out of favor wasn't she with her her spy masters during her career why was that she was Uh, uh, she's very controversial in Every sense, you know, she's she's female. We mm. didn't for the first year. She was the only female special agent. Mm. She's part Jewish, so that comes with lots of um, mm. associations. She's uh, she's not British, but she's working for the British. Mm. But she's in her heart, she's working for Poland. So she's got mixed le- allegiances, if you like. Although, of course, they were allies. It didn't mean they were entirely. Mm. Um, their, their aims are entirely together. So at one point, she's talking to an independent Polish resistance group called the Musketeers, uh, uh. and they are talking both to the Russians mm. on one side and to the Germans mm. on the other side, because Poland, of course, was threatened on two fronts by mm. these two different powers. Um, so it's entirely logical for the Poles to be talking to both sides. And because of that, she was t- tainted or mm. tarred with that same brush. So mm. at one point, she arrives in the, after this incredible journey through mm. Europe in the spring of 1941, mm. driving through countries with her one-legged lover mm. and colleague mm. in arms, you know, sometimes just weeks before those mm. countries joined the Axis, mm. on one occasion just days mm. before. And she finally arrives at the safety of the British base mm. in Cairo. Mm. And they completely put her on ice. I mean, it's just this appalling treatment. And it later turns out they're um, investigating reports that she's a double agent. Mm-hmm. Partly mm-hmm. it just seems the only way she can still be alive. Um, it seems to me that she was um, someone who was, uh, just reading from the account in your book, who was always um, up for it, um, was something of an adrenaline junkie. Yes. Um, she didn't seem to me, from your account, to be um, a massively academic person, but her character was what made her um, this person who could slip in and out of worlds and yeah. smuggle things and facilitate all of the sabotage that yeah. SOE... Uh, yeah, she's one of huge uh, appetites, I think. I mean, she, she wasn't a stupid person. She mm. went to a convent school mm. and her mm. grades were very good. You yeah. know, she, yeah. she was doing well. Mm. But she was chucked out of her convent school because, mm. you know, one morning she was bored during... It was a Catholic convent school mm. and they were saying mass in the morning. Mm. It was still dark and mm. very tedious and she was cold. She tried, decided to try and speed things up. They were all holding candles, mm. the girls. Mm. And she thought she'd if she set light to the priest's cassocks, it might speed up the whole process. Mm. And, and it did, of course, because she was expelled so she she was she was a clever woman but she she never she she was very determined in other regards but not academically her other appetites overruled her mm-hmm. Um, and she she also very much enjoyed um, the high life, didn't she? Um, she did. She she was someone who would turn up glamorously um, in in the social sort of um, arenas in these various different countries and 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 live as this sophisticated woman as well. Well, her glamour, I think, mm. was very much in her personality mm. rather than in her appearance. I mean, she mm. was very beautiful before the war. She was um, awarded Star of Beauty in mm. the first mm. Miss Poland Beauty mm. National mm. Beauty competition, um, and she used her beauty queen photograph mm. in which she's wearing a fur. Coat 
coat and not much else, even in her passport. Mm. She was she was quite a vain woman. But most of the time, she just wore very well-cut shirts and skirts mm. and mm. trousers. And she didn't go for the big, glamorous mm. clothing mm. look. She, she was, um, but she was of, magnetic anyhow. She, she was someone who was recognised even by Winston Churchill um, as having made a major contribution to... Well, so uh, Winston yeah. Churchill's yes. daughter said. Oh, yes. I see. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. I see. Yeah. Yeah. She, she reported back that... She was decorated, though, wasn't she? Several times. She was yeah. highly decorated, mm. yeah. Mm. She had um, the George Medal, the OBE. The mm. French also decorated mm. her. They gave her the Croix de Guerre mm. with one star. Mm. And she had an array of ribbons that any general would have mm. been proud of. Mm. An extraordinary amount. Mm. Well, it's an account of an absolutely incredible life, and I can recommend it as a very good read to, to, to any of our listeners. What's the next project you're going to be working on? Huh? Oh, well, yes, I'm very excited. I have just signed my mm. next book deal, <laughs> um, and I'm sticking in the Second World War. And... I, I kind of I wanted to move away from it. There are so many books, mm. but then I, I came across another story that is incredible about these two extraordinary women whose lives intersect. Very dramatic stories again, but something very different to this one. Mm. So I'm just starting out on that now. Claire Mully, thank you very much indeed for sharing sharing such an incredible book with me. It's great, absolutely wonderful. It's a real pleasure. Thank Thanks you. very much. Thank you. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105.
It's been an interesting month in terms of things to discover in the city centre. As thought-provoking work by a group of artists known as Black Rats Projects opened at Changing Spaces in Green Street. A collaboration of work by eight artists presented Memento Mori, which loosely means Remember You Die, revisiting the artist's obsession with death and a Victorian tradition of keepsakes of loved ones who die. Changing Spaces director Angie Main introduces the work. Angie, some wonderful things at the window here at, uh, at 10 Green Street. An enormous skull of a hippopotamus, which I gather is an antiquity. That's a correct, mm. yes. Um, and then also um, Giles Walker's um, moving bag. Um, can you describe that to me? Yes, yes, of course. It's a, a, an old sack, old coffee bean sack, strung up to the ceiling. Mm. Uh, and inside um, there is something that moves. So uh, we have quite a lot of fun, actually, with the audience because it's uh, crowds of people have been collecting around it, um, getting them to guess what's inside. Um, okay, now this um, exhibition is called the Black Rats um, Arts Project. Is that right? No, the exhibition is called M uh, Memento Mori, oh, yeah. and it's the uh, second collaboration between Changing Spaces and Black Rat Projects in London. Okay, it's a group exhibition on three floors. Um, who's featuring and why do they fit together, basically, on this Right, these, these are artists that are um, um, part of Black Rat's um, group of artists that they have and sell their work. Uh, it ranges from painters to sculptors like Giles, who's well-known in Cambridge. Uh, okay, now it seems to be um, the, the, the theme that loosely ties it together is an obsession with death, which of course yes. is a very long running one um, with artists. Can you tell me a little bit about how that idea develops through the, the exhibition? Uh, it's Memento Mori. Hmm. Uh, it's actually the second exhibition because Black Rat had the one previously in London mm -hmm. uh, yeah. last year. And um, it's all, all to do with the, you know, the different, uh, different artists' association with or collecting things that have to do with death mm. or with uh, for instance you know going back to the Victorian um, attitude towards uh, Memento Mori who were very um, they used to make a lot of artifacts out of dead loved ones hair for instance. Basically it's an exhibition um, all about somber thoughts um, and coming to terms with death isn't it? Um, yes mm, yeah mm. and something that happens to us all and mm. I think actually it can be quite somber mm. going through it yeah. but then at the end there's the video installation yeah. which yeah. is absolutely splendid which we send everyone to after mm. which shows the actual cycle of life. Yeah um, the, the video is great because it's down um, a whitened and dark mm. corridor that you stand at one end of um, and it's projected onto the wall Yes. Um, and there's this um, very exciting yeah. Face which changes into colourful things, yeah, into correct. skulls, a little bit like um, the skulls at the beginning of Live and Let Die, the yeah. James Bond film. Um, and you've also got lots of um, exhibits here which centre around skulls, mm. um, crossbones, um, skeletons superimposed um, on photographs, Butch Anthony's, uh, mm. things like um, Pussy Wit. What, what's that piece about, do you know? Uh, that one is one of my favourites, yeah. Pussy Wit. Yeah. What I really like about it is how his. Uh, use collage and paint as well because mm -hmm. uh, I think that's taking it a step further um, but I remember mm -hmm. I remember looking at these when I first saw them mm -hmm. in London and I looked and it was oh my god these these photographs mm -hmm. these 
this is the state these photographs of these people are in now. You know, they are all skeletons. Um, it's great because what, what you've got here is you've got a whole room full of um, they're Victorian port, port, mm -hmm. photographic portraits, yes. which is then superimposed um, <laughs> skeleton outlines on um, and things like um, you know, adjusted the eyes, uh, then um, put in these captions or what have you. Um, and it's a great sense of kind of, uh, as, you, as you just said, you know, that all of those people are stone dead skeletons and skulls. Um, and it kind of almost brings them back to life to haunt you, doesn't it? I, I don't think it haunting you. Yeah. I think it's just, I mean, I just see it, it's a bit Dadaist, really. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's maybe the, what it's closest to, mm. you know, kind of contemporary Dada. Mm -hmm. There's also uh, Candy's Trips, uh, mm. which has um, these um, figurines in very large um, yes. dome glass yes. um, ca uh, cases, lots and lots of them. What, what's the origin of that one? The origin oh. of that is um, she did a show with Giles Walker just before Christmas, oh. and she mainly does um, uh, illustrate. She's actually an illustrator, and um, so it was a kind of combination of, of both their work. You know, mm. she made a, a few little creatures that actually related well to, which were like out of her paintings, actually. Mm. And there were masses of them all over the, all over the place. And this is just taking a few of them and, and making them into kind of exhibits in their own right. Um, Jars deals in some very peculiar things, doesn't he? Which um, lots of those are around in this exhibition. They're, they're, they're little figurines which are made from the skulls of small birds um, into little creatures. Um, and he, he's an absolute expert at that, in producing the most peculiar and weird and mind-bending little things like that. He's, he's a fantastic artist, and I, I think, you know, we're so lucky to be able to show his work. Mm -hmm. You know, um, there was the exhibition last July, and then more work here. And we are hoping to bring Giles back in a solo show, and also we're hoping to do Butch Anthony as well, mm. uh, as solo shows. We've been planning this exhibition for about a year now, and really waiting for the ideal venue. And I think because this old 17th century building with these amazing panels, it, wooden panels, which are like artworks in their own right, uh, it was actually, it's really difficult to put work in here that doesn't get lost. So, but because of the timelessness of this particular exhibition, um, we think it's been very successful. And you Maine, thank you very much indeed for talking to Cambridge Money Five. Pleasure. Thank you. Well, if Memento More didn't chill the spine pleasantly just a little bit, an even more thought-provoking event took place at the university lecture halls, perhaps as a result of Cambridge's commitment to the right to freedom of the mind. Visions of enchantment and occultism, spirituality and visual culture was a two-day conference in collaboration between Cambridge University's Department of Art History and the Art History of Bournemouth in association with the European Society for the Study of Western Esotericism. The serious study of the history and nature of occult ideas, witchcraft, alchemy and devil worship has traditionally been a somewhat taboo amongst serious academics, the risk being marked as crackpots. 
that back in medieval times would have risked being burned at the stake for taking an unhealthy interest in it. At this event, academics from around the world presented 38 papers on esotericism and art and analysed its proper place in literature, academia and art history as an origin of recurring and powerful ideas that we just can't ignore. Someone said at the conference that art is religion, and that was certainly true when attending a lecture on talismatic charts and the role of vision, both of Arabic and Persian origins, with Professor Emily Savage-Smith of Oxford University, who investigated the content of striking talisman that promised to protect you from all kinds of misfortunes simply by wearing it, laying it out or performing a small ritual with it. She presented slides on a, of a roll of paper in a cylinder, which when unfurled could deliver a hundred wishes granted, 70 for the next world and 30 for this one, giving, for example, success in your affairs, protection from enemies, magic or malicious accusations, injury from weapons of war, immunity from plague, sudden death or birth hazards, and even freedom from slavery and cures for just about anything. People seriously felt that this art could invoke forces other than God to protect houses from bad spirits or a bad future. A gripping talk was given by Professor Ellie Warlick from the University of Denver, an expert on alchemy and surrealism and author of A Magician in Search of a Myth, currently engaged in the study of the history of alchemaic philosophy and visual images. Her recent book, Alchemia, Women, Gender and Sexuality in Alchemical Images, is concerned with analysing this subject through a feminist lens. We looked at medieval ideas about philosopher's stones and the role of nudity in depictions of witchcraft in women and the inherent misogyny in the art that suggested that no woman could be left on her own without getting up to diabolical occult mischief with the features of her own new body. The themes explored by other speakers included recurring ideas of inversion, perversion, original sin, demonisation, paganism, magic, rebellion, liberation, reversion and nudity, with envy being cited as the core motivation for practising witchcraft. Here's conference organiser Judith Noble of the Arts University of Bournemouth. What's this um, whole conference about, basically? Well, it's about visual culture and the occult and the esoteric and the spiritual. And it's been a year in the planning and it's about a whole range of ideas, a really wide breadth of anything to do with art, magic, mm. the occult. Um, um, the, the, these images of, of witches and, and sorcerers and demons and so on and so forth, um, uh, why is it so interesting do you think, to people? Well, I think... Um, it's perennially interesting because um, to, to kind of general audience it's showing us a side of humanity that fascinates us, a side that's a bit transgressive and that we're not supposed to look at if we're good, nice people. But for artists and art historians, there's been a huge reassessment of the place of the occult within the arts, particularly within the modern. So it's been ignored for a long time and now it's being looked at. Um, it's an entire strand of European thought and literature um, that has been um, absolutely essential for, for, for the things that we do enjoy in, in art and, 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 absolutely. and, 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 and Ideas, and yet it is quite often regarded as a taboo subject, isn't it? Absolutely, and I think that's partly because of our religious and spiritual heritage, but it's also because we live in a very materialistic society which doesn't like the idea of the spiritual and the esoteric per se. Um, do you think people need to actually sort of step out of the box a bit when they look at these kind of ideas and um, to understand them fully? 
Um, it, I think it depends what their yeah, starting yeah, point yeah, is. Yeah, Some yeah. people do it very naturally, yeah, yeah. and it's part of their yeah. psyche and their yeah, world anyway. Yeah. But yes, if they don't, yes, they do need to step out of the box and uh, just start thinking from scratch, really. Um, what are the more surprising things that come up in, in this series of um, uh, our talks um, that, that are particularly this time round being discussed? Well, we're only a quarter of the way through, but I particularly enjoyed the last session that we have and the looking at images of witchcraft and particularly the images of old women because you don't very often see images of old women in our current society so hmm. that's extremely interesting. Um, and the misogyny was quite obvious oh, yeah. isn't it? I mean the, it was actually the way women were treated in the past comes across mm. very strongly when you discuss the way that they're, they're treated in, in, in the medieval ideas mm. you know um, absolutely to almost demonise women and say they can't be trusted to be left on their own. Um, yeah. Yeah, 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 stunning, isn't it? <laughs> but how different is it from now? Um, um, and um, we're going on to do some stuff on um, uh, the effect of, um, uh, of, of magic and witchcraft on contemporary art. That's the next thing. That's what we're looking here. at now. Uh, what will that talk be covering? Well, there are a whole range of talks. Mm -hmm. um, a whole section of things about modernism, about painters like Jack Jackson Pollock. I'm looking at the work of filmmaker Derek Jarman, and somebody is examining very contemporary performance and music, Lady Gaga and Diamanda Galas. Judith, mm -hmm. thank you very much indeed. Thank you, it's a pleasure. Everything from the study of Shakespeare's witches to tarot, conjuring, alchemy, astrology, and even works by artists like Goya depicting the stealing and cannibalising of children as a theme were looked at. We then moved on to dream states and connections in the human mind and notions of telepathy and forceful energy, and then the secrets of animal magnetism and on to mesmerism. The author of The Red Goddess, Peter Gray, who's co-founder of the Scarlet Imprint, a cult, esoteric, talismanic book publisher, presented modern magic books from across Europe for people actively using magic in their daily lives. The array of magic books span paganism, necromancy, exorcism, apocalyptic witchcraft, sorcery cults, demonology, folk magic, wolves, devils and goddesses, madness and just about anything else you might find potentially unnerving at night. That includes current Brazilian and African witchcraft and the books themselves are credited with talismanic powers. He says any critical moment in life can be changed by using magic. My name is Peter Gray, I'm the co-founder of Scarlet Imprint and we're a, an occult um, esoteric talismanic book publisher. Um, you've got some very um, esoteric looking books um, in front of me. Can you tell me a little bit about what's in there? Um, certainly. We, um, we publish uh, practitioner materials, so that's the work of active magicians and witches across a variety of traditions, from European uh, witchcraft traditions through um, grimoire magic tradition practitioners um, to a variety of uh, diaspora religions from uh, Kimbanda to uh, Palameombe, um, to voodoo. So basically we're, we're, we're the cutting edge of what's happening in living magic today. Um, what is happening in living magic today? Uh, there's a huge renaissance going on, uh, largely as a result of, um, of, of people, people having the ability to talk to each other internationally. So the internet's had a huge impact, the scholarly um, production materials had a huge impact and also just the ability of people to come out and be honest about what they're doing. Um, and what are they doing? I mean, uh, 
practicing witchcraft? They're practicing witchcraft, they're practicing magic, they're doing what they've been doing since the dawn of time, but uh, with less fear of being burned for it. Yeah, I mean, that, that was um, very much, I mean, a lot of people sort of believe that this, this sort of belief of basically petered out in the West due to sort of the modern world and what have you. Obviously, it still goes on in, in Africa, but it's interesting to hear. Sure, our, our tradition in the West has been very much talked down when, in fact, we have a continuous magical tradition, as we can see through the grimoires, the magical books of Europe, through the medieval period, which have roots which go back to ancient Greece and uh, the near Middle East, which show uh, continuous practice has occurred in the West, and that we do have a spiritual tradition. Um, this morning we've been looking at um, various talisman um, uh, uh, and explanations of what they contain and how they protect you. Um, are there things that you believe can actually protect people from bad forces or yeah, there's, there's, there's a whole variety of talismans um, which have come partly as we saw this morning through the Arabic influence, whether that's magical squares or whether that's the combination of objects, the, the use of gemstones. Um, and indeed, that kind of magic is very much alive in the West. Can you give me some examples of the kind of thing that's contained in these books? Um, a few keynotes. Um, keynotes, we've got... Um, a lot of work on, on, the, on the medieval grimoires, so there's been a lot of interest in how our own native magical traditions have been preserved and have been worked with, and modern practitioners are now putting these into forms which, which are approachable and have, uh, have cut out a lot of the mistakes in the material. And also, we've got a lot of practical work, especially feeding in from the African diaspora religions in terms of more practical magic, so the work from hoodoo, the work from voodoo and to provide the results that they require. Um, obviously there's a strong tradition in um, academia and especially in a place like Cambridge that um, people who um, actually want to look at these kind of ideas and the effect they have on art and obviously the origins of ideas that are widely used, the people who take too much of an interest in it uh, are effectively dismissed um, as, as academics on the grounds that they're regarded as being you know, slightly kooky or what have you. I, th I think there's, there's always a suspicion that, that the academics uh, have, have gone native. I think that's been a, a, a long-standing concern of the academy with people who pursue the esoteric. And in my experience as a practitioner outside of the academic community, the academics are a mix. So there are academics who, uh, who are practitioners and there are academics who quite clearly aren't. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the academic study of magic has, has, has come on great leaps and bounds um, and it's, it's now being taken very seriously as a discipline, whereas previously it was being dismissed as, uh, as uh, a crackpot pursuit. It's obviously um, interesting to record and explore um, all of these ideas uh, um, um, and their um, origins. But, no, but I mean, what kind of things do you explore with magic? Just anything that can happen in life in the same way that sort of... Yeah, any of, the, yeah. any of the critical moments in life can be altered by magic. Yeah. So magic is there for birth, death, uh, marriage, love, uh, lust, business, money, all the, all the basic human concerns are met. Uh. Well, Sponsors, Abraxas Journal of Esoteric Studies, is a beautifully made biannual glossy magazine created in 2009 that takes up centre stage in the niche and is an interface between esoteric study of art and culture and practitioners with academia and represents the best of the international esoteric scene, containing essays and images spanning the magical and creative nexus. The subject matter of its latest issue, which attempts the serious study of the occult, has articles on magical oils, the history of demons, the history of homosexual gods, spirituality and symbolist circles.
Magazine founder and publisher Robert Ansell says esoteric studies is a field whose time has come. Okay, first of all, um, tell me about Abraxas. How did it come about and what does it do? Well, Abraxas is an idea I've had for a number of years, uh, which came to fruition in 2009, uh, a joint venture with my friend Christina Oakley-Harrington at Treadwell's Bookshop. For many years I've been uh, somewhat dismayed in the way that um, mainstream culture marginalises the esoteric, and the idea behind Abraxas was to create a vehicle which has cultural mobility, to take some of the ideas that are in the esoteric community to a wider audience. Um, so it's basically about properly understanding what these ideas are and, and, and what part they play in the art that we see all around us. That Absolutely, and the part they have played in the past, which is considerable actually. But what is in the latest edition of the Praxis Journal and why is it interesting? Uh, we've got uh, a fantastic feature by Sasha Chaitao on uh, Peladan, who was uh, um, a very interesting individual at the turn of the last century who was putting forward ideas that art is a religion, yeah. um, which is quite an advance of his time. We've got some fantastic uh, writing on uh, abramelin oil. Uh, we've got um, features from uh, an artist in Seattle uh, on uh, Dionysian mysteries. It's uh, incredibly diverse. I'm here today to speak on Austin Osmond Spare, yeah. who is an artist who was active uh, between 1900 and 1956. And he's seen as a sort of proto-surrealist because he had a lot of ideas which were later adopted by surrealism. Yeah. Uh, and I'm here today to talk about um, his relationship to the absolute and the way he approached that. Witchcraft is just so much hot air, but its odour lingers, was the finishing note quotation left by Professor Diana Papridge. And perhaps she's right, you can't quite dismiss its effect on the psyche fully. You're listening to Arts Roundup on Cambridge 105. They say once tasted, an actor's life runs deep in the blood and never really leaves the dramatically afflicted, as I discovered when talking to a serious-minded publisher lately, who has a past many young people with talent might seriously envy today. Colin Walsh, whose past stage name was actor Colin West, is now a Cambridge author and publisher and was awarded an honorary degree with Anglia Ruskin University for his input into their publishing MA course. But in a previous incarnation, he admitted being part of a television legend. He dropped into 105 to confess his sins. Colin, you're originally an actor. Um, tell me a bit about yourself and about your past. I read psychology, which uh, in the 60s was probably about as much use as sticking your head in a bucket of vomit. So uh, after I left, I changed my name from Colin Walsh to Colin West. Don't ask me why West. It just seemed right. <laughs> um, no one wanted to know if you'd been a student and so on, but what they want to know if you'd been acting elsewhere. And so I made up a complete history for myself and talked about um, acting in reps that I knew no self-respecting agent would ever visit, um, obscure places. Also, my uh, sister was an actress. She went to RADA and she was in Coronation Street and uh, she was in quite a, a, a lot of... Um, 
television mainly broadcast, but also she played in Billy Lie, which was a big play in the, the late 60s. And so I had some idea of what it took. I had a lot of 10 by 8 photographs, and um, I wrote to all the agents till gradually I got accepted by a couple of them. Um, OK, we're going to come back to your um, um, acting career in, in a moment, but um, you worked um, for quite some time for The Spectator under Nigel Lawson, didn't you? Yes, uh, I, um, after I decided I had to earn some money and I wasn't going to be earning it from acting, um, I applied for various jobs and then I heard on, on a network that there was a job going at The Spectator and um, I joined the Spectator as a sort of literary PR and investment manager. I was in charge of um, literary pages, those who advertised, advertised, and particularly I held five literary lunches a week, one every day from roughly about half eleven in the morning till about four at night, which included the sherry to start with and the brandy to finish with. That sounds fantastic. And what was Nigel Lawson like to work under? He was he was fine. Um, I only knew him as an editor. I mean, I didn't know him until I joined The Spectator. And it shows you how naive I was. I'm a, I'm a Liverpudlian. Um, and up in Liverpool, I don't think The Spectator had ever penetrated. So I had no idea. It was such a Tory paper. And, they, um, uh, and he was an uh, editor. He was uh, pretty genial with us. But... In those days, the editor was on high, and you crawled into the office on all fours to, mm -hmm. to say hello. But there were some great names on The Spectator in those days. Hilary Sperling was the literary editor. Trevor Grove was the assistant literary editor. Um, all of those doing their stuff much later on. And um, it was just a, a terrific venue. I could invite any writers uh, I liked to lunch. Uh, people like William Boyd, who were just sort of starting out. Um, and we held these lunches, and we never talked about advertising. Mm. We only talked about literary works. Well, that sounds like an ideal job. And you went on to Cambridge University Press, and you've been the author of 10 books. Um, what, what's the latest one about? Uh, the latest one I'm doing is called The Baby Boomer's Bible. Um, if you were born roughly between 45, 1945 and 65, you're a baby boomer. And um, the baby boomers have got something like 70% of the UK's wealth <laughs> between them. That's the, it's the richest source of uh, um, response for anyone advertising. And um, the baby boomers are, to some extent, being blamed as though they've pinched everything from uh, current generations. Um, we didn't. They didn't. Um, and the baby boomers Bible is what you will need to get you through on the next few decades. Um, okay, now that's that's who you are, this very sensible character, who you are today. Um, but what we've come here to talk about is another side to your character, um, which is that, in fact, you've been a monster. <clears throat> it, it's, uh, what's the Shakespearean quote? <laughs> it is of mine own nature. Uh, yes, I was an, a, a monster. I was a dominator. The the Dominator was a monster in the Doctor Who series. Um, which, which series was that one in? Uh, Do you know, um, this was in the 60s, and it was about 1968, so I never saw Doctor Who, didn't know what the hell it was about. But um, Patrick Troughton was the Doctor Who, and um, all I knew was um, I got a call from my agent to say they want someone to be dressed up and made up as a monster 
and having seen what you do in your previous um, television bits, you do, um, go along for it. So I went along with another mate um, to be interviewed. There were two of us, and they said, which of you is the hairiest? And after a quick examination, not, not a too exhaustive, um, it turned out that I was, which turned out to be my advantage because one of us had to wear a miniskirt and um, I wore a long robe. And any exposed skin either of us had was covered in cold porridge. They poured latex on our burr patches. Then they poured cold porridge. Then they took a hair dryer and... They dried the porridge onto you, so it became your grey mottled skin. So, so what did you look like as a dominator? I mean, it was grim. Uh, I mean, uh, there are heads were blotted out with a um, a plastic scalp. They put bits of hair at random bits all over our faces and body. <laughs> they blanked our eyes out with fish skin, and then they gave us the equivalent of ten um, p today and said, "Look." Um, it's lunchtime, but you look so horrible, uh, we can't allow you to go into the BBC canteen. And we were sent along to the sandwich machine, where for two shillings, as it was then, you got a pretty poor sandwich, but one good enough for a monster. And so we went along and stood in the queue. And as people turned round, there was a sort of scream, and people uh, were put off their sandwiches, which meant we didn't have to pay for them. It was very nice. We went back to our dressing room, being assigned to us, but we had all this latex and porridge over our faces and we couldn't crack it. So you had to shove the sandwich through a tiny slit in your lips, but you couldn't munch. And I, I, um, I don't recall whether I liked that sandwich or not, yeah. um, but I'm sure it was very tasty um, on the floor. Did you meet the characters who played um, the master and the, and the brigadier as well as the doctor? Um, or was your role very sort of confined to one few the scenes? The role was so pretty confined, confined but yeah. yes, I did meet them all. Mm. Because once you were in a series, you had to, you were going to be shooting all the time. And in, um, even in those days, the late 60s, they videoed all performances. So everyone had to wait to make sure that all the takes were fine. And so, yeah, it was great to, to, to meet all the regular characters in the series. Um, I mean, the resources available to Doctor Who now are absolutely um, unbelievable um, with um, people like David Tennant and Matt Smith playing um, Doctor Who. They've got much yeah. more money because originally it was it was shot on a pretty limited budget, wasn't it? it, it most of it was made of cardboard, as indeed mm -hmm. I was in those mm -hmm. days. And um, it, was a, it was a Kellogg's packet budget. You know, you mm -hmm. cut the eyes out of the packet. It's... Um, it, it, it was never seen as going to be as big as it was, so it never attracted the money till much later. And and whether or not that's a good thing, I, I don't know. Do you um, ever go to the, the Doctor Who conventions? Where, no, no, I, you haven't, don't, don't I, I have known people. They've <laughs> yeah. had them in Chicago. Yeah. And there's, um, I know there have been some moves to have whole cast going, but um, I think if you covered me in porridge now and fried it with a hairdryer, you wouldn't really notice any difference. <laughs> <laughs> um, thank you very much indeed for coming in and telling uh, 105 about You're that. welcome. <laughs> Enjoyed it. <laughs> thank you.
this time to take a glimpse at what's coming up in the city in the coming weeks. West Road Concert Hall hosts masterpiece Bach's St John's Passion with Britain's Symphonia on April the 16th, featuring a pre-concert talk by soprano Julia Doyle and tenor Lestin Davis. Cambridge Drawing Society's art exhibition opens at the Guildhall on April the 5th and runs till April the 12th, with free entry between 10am and 5.30pm. Cambridgeshire County Youth Orchestra performs at the Corn Exchange on April the 13th with work by Holst, Vaughan Williams and Patterson. At the Arts Theatre on Monday April 14th and 15th, Ballet Black features classically trained black and Asian dancers and celebrates dance from around the world. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Arts Roundup. I hope you've enjoyed listening in on Cambridge 105 FM and will send us your arts news in and around Cambridge.